Lord, we thank you for the opportunity now to come before you to to lift up your word and to see what you would have us to learn from this. And we thank you and ask that you be with us today and guide. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 11. Wherefore, remember that you, being in times past Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by those which are called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that it, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of the commandments contained in the ordinance were to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereof, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them which were nigh. So we're going to look at this. Last week we talked about that it's, we're saved by grace, not of works. And we talked about how grace is everything. And I really hope you caught hold of that. Grace is everything. God gives us the desire to seek him. He gives us the power to seek him. He keeps us. He strengthens us. Remember all those points we made on last week that everything we do is because of grace. We can do nothing that pleases God enough to take us to heaven. Now, we can get a smile by being obedient and serving and everything. And just like a parent, you know, they, they appreciate when their children are obedient. God appreciates when we're obedient. But that appreciation doesn't say, okay, I'll let you in heaven because of what you're doing. We're getting to heaven because of what Jesus did. And so he continues in here, and this is why I bring this up, because we have this word wherefore, which means that he's talking about what happened in the previous sentence. So in verse 11, it says, wherefore, remember that you in times past or being in times past Gentiles in the flesh. He's talking to the Ephesian church, mostly made up of Greek converts. But he's also talking to people like us sitting in this church, which I believe everybody in this room is probably a Gentile, which means you're not a Jew. <laughs> now, anybody who's not a Jew is a Gentile. And that's how the Jews broke up the world. You were either a Jew, God's chosen person, people, or you were a Gentile headed for hell. And that's how they looked at the world. The Jews were going to heaven. The rest of the world was destined for hell and were created to go to hell. And Paul's going, remember, you that were, were Gentiles. You were Gentiles. You were, you were in the flesh. You were following the wrong. The wrong. And, he goes, and he goes even further, in case you didn't understand, who were called uncircumcised by those who were of the circumcision. So he's going to go, in case you don't know what that means for being a Gentile, it means that you're not circumcised according to Jewish tradition. So we see this, Paul is saying, you who were not part of God's original family. Okay? All of us are that same place. We weren't part of God's original family because we were lost. We were sinners. We still are sinners. But we were sinners in deserved punishment. And the punishment that God has reserved for sinners, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is yeah. death, eternal death. That is what we 
come into this world deserving. And Paul's just laying the groundwork to the Ephesians. Hey, once you weren't part of the kingdom, once you weren't part of the kingdom, and all of us hopefully know and remember the day that we weren't part of God's kingdom. Because there was a time, if we are truly Christians, there was a time when we weren't part of the kingdom. For me, it was from the time I was from zero to nine years old. Actually, 10, because in 10 I got saved. But from zero to 10 years old, I wasn't part of the kingdom. I had earned death. I accepted Jesus Christ as my savior. I came into his family, and I'm no longer separate from him. And this is what these verses, we want to look at these verses, because these are powerful verses that we're looking at. And he says, in times past, you were called the uncircumcised by them, which were called circumcision in the flesh made by people. So Paul's even making a distinction here, saying these people that are saying that you weren't part of the kingdom, they weren't part of the kingdom either, because they only had a fleshly experience. An experience done by flesh. Okay. The Jews are saved by Jesus Christ and his righteousness as well as everybody else. They just have a little inside track because they grow up learning about all the stuff from the beginning. Now the Jews took this idea of we're, we, we are God's chosen people. We're just going to separate ourselves and we're not going to go tell anybody. That was not what God had told them to do. They were supposed to bring everybody in <laughs> And the temple, all the sacrifices, when you read the Old Testament, all the sacrifices where anybody was able to come into the temple and make these sacrifices. And it was an amazing thing. I don't know that anybody ever did or not, but God said clearly, anybody can come and do this. He wanted the world to come and worship him. And the Jews just kept it as a really tight secret and still do to this day, feeling that they're special and nobody else is to be invited into their specialness. They're quick, yeah. But, and Paul's saying, you know, these people, you know, they may think they're special, but it was only something they did in the flesh. It wasn't something that the Spirit did. So he's already laying the groundwork for them. They're, they're, don't worry about it. They're not special. And remember, we've talked a lot about how the Judaizers would come in behind Paul and say, Paul gave you a good message, you know, praise God for grace and mercy, but, okay, and that but is the problem, was the problem. And they're going, but he didn't tell you to keep all these laws and to follow all these things. Well, of course he didn't tell you because Jesus fulfilled them. Now, do we keep them as we grow and mature? Yes, we will keep many of them as we grow and mature. Not because I'm trying to say, God, I've earned heaven, but God, I love you so much that I want to honor you by keeping your rules that you've given me. And that's between each individual and God and how far he wants you, wants you to go. But Jesus fulfilled the law. He said that not one jot or tittle would be passed away until all the law was fulfilled. He fulfilled it at the cross. He fulfilled it in his body. He fulfilled the law. Thereby grace comes down to us. Not to say the law is worthless. And we've talked about this many times. The law is not worthless. It is not bad. But its job is to show us that we're bad, <laughs> that we can't keep it. None of us can keep even the Ten Commandments, much less all 613 laws that God gave the Jews. Okay, 613 laws in the Old Testament, and we can't even keep the Ten Commandments. Okay, and if anybody thinks you've kept the Ten Commandments, come talk to me later on, and we'll help you understand you haven't kept the Ten Commandments. <laughs> you know, all of us have had had some place where he, where you've told a lie in our lifetime. You know, might be what we consider a little lie, but we've told lies. 
And if we take it as far as Jesus is concerned, most of us have committed murder because we've been angry with somebody without just cause. And Jesus said, as far as God's concerned, that's, that's murder. A lustful thought, he says, can be the adultery. So we don't keep it, and we don't even keep them in their, in their, own, their own thing. Most of us have other gods before, before God. And we may not have an idol in our, in, in our backyard or something that we bow down to. But how many of us have something that's more important to us than God is in, in any given time? Now, and I've said it before, most, most of us have a living room set up to, with a nice idol, idol in front that we all look at for many hours a day. Mm-hmm. You know, when we could be doing something for God. And I'm not saying all television is wrong, but when you spend, you know, you go home and you, know, and you sit there from 2 o'clock till 9, 10 o'clock at night or something, and you're, you're watching whatever. <laughs> well, and they might, might not even be really bad. <laughs> but how much time are you wasting that could have been developed to God? How much time has been given out to something else put above God? And we all do that. How many times has God, you've known that God has asked you to talk to somebody and give a testimony or a witness, and you go, oh, no, God, I can't, you know, I don't, I don't quite have enough time. It might, it might wrap up. You know, they, they might think I'm a nut. Whatever, whatever your excuse in your head is to not talk to somebody, and you know that God has told you to, you know, that's lifting something up before God. And we look at this, and it says in verse 12, at, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in this world. said, so when you were Gentiles... When you were Gentiles, when you were of the circumcision made only by hands, by the flesh, you were separate from God. Separate, headed for hell. We are born into this world headed for hell. And in spite of what the world tries to tell us, well, look at these kids, they're just so innocent. Well, I had four kids of my own and none of them were innocent. Well, she had four. They're my kids, but she had them. Uh, It was all her problem. She did it. No. None none of those kids were innocent kids. We didn't have to take any of our kids and teach them how to be selfish. We didn't have to teach any of our kids how to to, uh, lie and, and say they didn't do something when they did. When they had the chocolate cur- uh, chips all rubbed on their face saying, no, I didn't get into the cookies. <laughs> you know, uh, no, I didn't have a cookie. You know, we, didn't, we didn't have to work at that. The sin nature comes out. And this is what Paul's saying. You were separated. And it says here, you were separated from the commonwealth of Israel. And commonwealth literally just means citizenship. Israel represents God's people. And he says, you were you were separated from that commonwealth. You weren't, even, you weren't even part of my people. And he said that oftentimes about his own people that they weren't part of his people because of the way they lived. And you read the Old Testament and all the warnings saying, get right or else, get right or else, get right or else. The judgment, you see the Kohath revo- uh, rev- uh, revolt against Moses and God says, everybody get away from the Kohites. And the ground opened up and swallowed them. <laughs> to show that they weren't part of the commonwealth of Israel because of their disobedience. Now, we, are, we should be happy that we live in the time of grace. Mm-hmm. Jesus died and God's wrath has really been held in check 
for a time. It's getting ready to be released. We're getting close to the time when the church is going to be taken from this world and God's wrath is going to reign again on this world. And he says, okay, you didn't listen to my grace. Now I'm going to teach you my anger. And sometimes we feel like God's angry with us a lot when we go through hard times. But you know, those hard times, we've talked about this, are there not because he's angry with us, usually. Usually they're to help us learn to grow. We go through hard times so that we can learn to grow, make sure that our faith is strong. And we've talked about this. If you, if you uh, have a table, like the little table in the corner back there in the foyer, I set something on it and a whole thing crashed down. It's not a strong table. <laughs> Don't put anything heavy on that table. It's not good. <laughs> you know, uh, and I've told you, you know, we, we have faith when we sit down in chairs. You know, is a chair going to hold us up? Well, most of the time, a chair will hold us up. But we've all seen chairs where we look at it and say, I don't think I would put a book on that chair, much less myself. I mean, test it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just test it out with some weight or something. God's purpose of the test is to test. Is our faith real? Is it going to stand up to trials? Are we going to grow? And the other thing we've talked about is if you're doing weightlifting and you're saying, I'm going to, I'm going to build up my muscles, <laughs> I'm going to lift weights. Well, we could take one of these pens, <laughs> and I could lift this pen all day long, <laughs> all night long, <laughs> all week long, and I might get a little bit of muscle just out of sheer repetition, but I'm not going to get any big muscle from lifting this little pen, <laughs> no matter how long I do it. God's going to put weight on our life. He's going to put weight in our life and say, exercise your faith. And he's going to do, as, as the Truth Project's tagline is, do you really believe that what you believe is really real? He's going to test, do you believe it? Do you believe that if the people do not accept Jesus Christ, they're going to hell? What does your life say about that? How many people have you shared the gospel with? I'm telling you, if you don't share the gospel with people, you don't believe that they're headed to hell. Or you believe that, that they deserve hell, which is even worse. Yeah. Now, because that would show that we'd have no understanding of what hell is about. Paul is saying, you're not part of the commonwealth. You're strangers, you're aliens <laughs> to God. And you know, it's the greatest thing that he sent Jesus to die for us when we were strangers, aliens, not, and even haters of him. And yet Jesus sent his son, God sent his son Jesus to die for us. That is just an unfathomable love that he sent his son to die for us. And it says that we have no hope without God. Verse 13 says, but. And you all know I love that word, but. That means something's changing in what, what's being talked about. But now, in Christ Jesus, we who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. <coughs> Jesus' blood allows us to come close to God. That is pretty powerful when you think about that. We who are distant, great gulf between us and God. And we could try to build bridges and do good works and try to behave and be, be good. And we might even make a little dent out into the, into the gulf, you know, like the West Rim there where they built that little horseshoe above the Grand Canyon. You know, doesn't go anywhere. 
Doesn't take you very far out from the Grand Canyon, but that's a good picture of our works. Goes out a little ways. You know, it may look good, but it doesn't get us to the other side. And the great big hole to fall into. And he's saying, Jesus' blood allows us to come before God, come into his presence. The precious blood of Jesus. We need to keep that in mind always, what it, what it costs to get us into God's presence. How often do we get to the place where we somehow think of, well, I'm, I was just a good person. God really loved me. No, you were a wicked, evil person, and God didn't like you. No matter how good you think you might have been, no matter how good anybody might have thought you were, including myself, a wicked sinner deserving hell, and Jesus died for us in that condition, shed his blood. His blood covers our sins. His blood allows his righteousness to be put on us. His blood allows us to stand before God. Big fancy word that, that we've used, propitiation. It means the satisfaction of the anger toward the people. Jesus was our propitiation. He satisfied God's anger toward the world. His blood. His blood in the Old Testament shown as the priest going in once a year and sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat. Another name for the mercy seat for those who aren't coming to the weekday classes, the seat of propitiation where the blood was put to cover and, and satisfy God's anger towards sin. Do you realize that his righteousness, his holiness demands punishment? And because he is completely holy, he is completely righteous, he is completely just, he can't just say, oh, well, I'm just going to forget about it. He is the good judge. It says it has to be paid. The good news is that Jesus paid the price. On the cross, he took all of our sin. All sin was put on him. His death paid for all. And people will come along and say, well, how can one person die for, for many? Well, in those days, it wasn't uncommon for two armies to come together and choose, instead of fighting army against army, they would pick two champions, or maybe 10 champions. They would take a small number and say, OK, you guys fight, and the winner wins the war. Now, we don't never do anything like that in our day. David and Goliath was a great example of that. Stand, two armies standing there ready to fight, and they're going, well, what, rather than fight and kill lots of people, we'll just put two champions out in the middle. Win, winner wins. You know, and of course, the Philistines thought they had a great advantage with a nine-foot nine foot two giant that carried a sword at a, close to 100 pounds and had never lost a battle. They thought they were going to win that. And along comes David with, with God behind him. But Jesus died for the substitute for all. Substitute for all people. And there's only one sin that will send people to hell now. And that's the rejection of Jesus Christ. When people stand at the white throne judgment, God's just going to say, what did you do with my son? And they're going, well, I didn't do anything. I never knew him about him. And he's going to show them every opportunity they had to accept Jesus to accept the sacrifice. Very simple. Very simple. They're not going to hell because they lied, they stole, they cheated, they whatever. They're going to hell because they rejected the sacrifice of Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Him. He's the one way. 
A lot of people will try to say, well, I think there's lots of ways, you know, and you be good or, you know, you just do, some, do enough right things, you'll be okay. No, God says, all our righteousness is filthy rags. We can do all the good things we want, and they don't stand up, and they don't stand up to the test. And when I, in Isaiah 64, 6, where it says that they're all, ra they're all filthy rags, they're talking about bloody, putrefied, infected rags that would be used in a doctor's office type thing taken off of the wounds. And if you've ever seen rags from a, you know, bandages from a really bad wound that's, that's oozing all that infection and blood, that's not something you'd want to get dressed up in. And yet people say, I'm going to do lots of good work and I'm going to stand in front of God with all these stinking rags and expect him to say, come on in. And he's going to say, get out of here. Because it's not the righteousness of Christ. He paid the price. He draws us near to, to the Father. And he says, He is our peace, who has made us one. He is our peace. And that means without conflict. It means being serene because we understand who he is. We understand that he's in control. He is our peace. If you're not living in peace, and peaceful conditions in your mind, turn it over to God. Turn it over to Jesus because he is our peace. He is our helmet of salvation that will keep us peaceful. He is the one that gives us that peace. He was the one that gives us peace in the middle of the storm because we're concentrated on him and not the storm. We're concentrated on him instead of the problems that bring us out of peace. Is it very easy to do? In one sense, yes, it's very easy to do because you just do it. In reality, it's hard to do, though, isn't it? We all know how hard it is to let go of what bothers us. And it's very difficult. I saw a skit one time where this guy comes down the, down the aisle of a church where, very, very, with all kinds of bags on him, on him. You know, I'm sure they weren't loaded, but comes out with like eight bags strapped to him, bent over, struggling, walks up to a cross, puts everything down on, at the cross. And then there's two ways the story goes. He either leaves happy or as he's leaving, he starts picking up the bags and dragging them back with him, <laughs> depending on what point the, the speaker's wanting to make. But most of us are like that man coming up. I'm going to put this on the cross, Jesus. And we turn and walk away, and we go, oh, no, I need this bag. No, I need this one. <laughs> and before long, we have all our bags walking away from the cross. Mm -hmm. Is it simple to get the peace? Yes. Drop them there and leave them there. Is it easy to do? No, it's very hard to do in many, in many senses because we want to be responsible. We want to figure things out ourselves. Our flesh gets involved and say, God, I just got to figure this out. I, I know you can do it, or, I, or I, at least I think you can do it, but God, I just got to do it. You're not going to have peace that way. You're not going to have peace if you think you have to do anything for God. It won't work. The more you learn to leave the bags at the cross with Jesus, because he paid for them, the more peace you're going to have in your life. The more joy you're going to have in your life. When you've got somebody who just bothers you all the time, maybe it's a child who's doing things wrong and headed the wrong way, the more you can just put them into God's hands and say, God, I know you can fix this problem better than I can. The more peace you're going to have. And you know what? I've seen it over the years many times. The more likely they are to turn to God. I've got two sons, one I kind of left alone and the other one I kept 
bugging about coming back to God, and he's still not coming back to God, but the flip side of that is he also doesn't talk to me very often. And uh, because every time I ask him, are you ready to come back to God? Not harsh, not mean, just are you ready to come back? You know, you've, you've gone through this accident, you've gone through this, this injury, are you ready to turn back to God? So talks to his mom a lot, he just doesn't talk to me. <laughs> so, but we can sit there and try to push somebody and push somebody. We have the heart of love. We want them to grow. We want them to respond. We want to see them grow. And what do they hear? Nag, 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 nag. <laughs> and if we just sit back and say, God, I'm putting them in your hand. I'm just going to love them. Am I going to be appreciative? You know, am I going to like where they're at and what they're doing? No, not necessarily. But we put them in God's hands and just say, I love you. I care for you. I want you to want the best for you. And we'll see all that happen. And here we see in the second half of verse 14, he has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Now when Paul says this, he's thinking the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. The middle wall of partition. That veil. That when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, the veil in the temple that separated the holy place and the holy of holies ripped from top to bottom. God tore it and saying, people have access to me. The price has been paid. Before, you couldn't come to God's presence. Before Jesus died, they, they, they loved him. They prayed to him. They, but they didn't have the same relationship with God that we can have. We get to have a personal relationship with God the Father. So much for, so as they, we get to call him Abba, which is the Aramaic word for, for father, but it's much more than father. It's closer to daddy. It's that, it's that loving relationship, the one that you would use with your own father, dad or daddy. Very few people call their fathers father. <laughs> now, that's a very formal, you know, or papa's one, you know, whatever that little kind title is for your father. That, that you use. God says you've got the right to use that with him. Do you really realize how special that is? If you go into any other religion, you don't see the God of that religion as somebody you can approach as a, as a daddy. There's always somebody up there that's looking to punish. For the Muslims, they don't see Allah as a kind person. They see him as a very vengeful, angry person that you're not going to want to be anywhere close. You get into Krishna and you're, you've got a war god who definitely you're not going to go approaching. You know, you've got all these religions that are saying that if you do good, you might be accepted. You might be accepted if you do enough good. Christianity is such a special relationship because it says, Nothing I do is going to make me accepted by God. Nothing. I can't do anything that God says, okay, that's good enough to come into heaven. It's all Jesus. We accept a gift. And he says, I've just got a gift for you. Here's your gift. Do you want eternal life or not? Do you want a relationship where you can come before the creator of the universe and make your petitions known or not? You don't have to do anything. We're coming up on Christmas time. How many of us are planning to give gifts to our, 
our family members, and we're going and of course we're gonna tie this little thing. To get this gift, you must do these eight things on my list, or you're not getting this gift. That's how we do it, right? No, of course not. It's a gift. Here is your gift. All they have to do is take it from our hand or from under the tree or whatever you have it, and it's theirs. This is God's relationship with us. He's holding out a gift. And he's saying this gift is going to cover your sins. It's going to allow you to draw nigh. It's going to make us one with us. It says in here that Jesus prayed one out of the two. He takes the sinner, gives them his righteousness, and makes the sinner one with him. That's powerful. When we are saved, Jesus comes to dwell in us. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. And the Father comes to dwell in us. We're told in Philippians that the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelleth in God and in Christ, and he dwells in us. You want to talk about power <laughs> that we don't tap? The very Godhead is dwelling in us. And we walk around defeated. We walk around as if everything is going to beat us up and, and destroy us. And nothing can defeat God. He's dwelling in us. And as long as I'm hiding in him, nothing can touch me. If I want to have problems, I get outside of him and say, okay, God, I'm going to take my armor off. I'm going to walk over here and stand in the, in the hail of bullets and, and, and arrows and attacks, and I'm going to see how long I can survive. And I'll last about two seconds, if I'm lucky. Or I can stay hidden in Christ and have the victory. God wants us to have victory. He's given us great victory. Not in what we can do, not in my works, but what in Christ does for me. What he does for me and for you. He wants you to have victory, but it's all through Christ. We're going to bow and uh, end here. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we've had to come before you. Lord, we ask that you help us to come into you to dwell in you, to see the victory that you have for us, to, to be able to walk with you in a strong and mighty way, and that you will challenge each person. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, we ask that they will say simply, Lord, I am a sinner. I deserve to be punished. I accept the gift of Jesus' sacrifice and his life in my life. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.